Well, greetings, listeners in listener land. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. We originate from and connect the Gateway City to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Jonas Salk and the polio vaccine that he developed. And we have an extended interview with Charlotte Jacobs, who wrote a book on the life of Jonas Salk. And we're going to talk to her. Our guest today is Dr. Charlotte D. Jacobs. She is professor of medicine emerita at Stanford University. She's a native of Tennessee, graduated from the University of Rochester, and studied medicine right here at Washington University in St. Louis. As a professor at Stanford University, she engaged in teaching, cancer research, and patient care. She has served as Senior Associate Dean and as Director of the Clinical Cancer Center. She's received numerous honors and has published 90 scientific articles and three books which reflect her cancer and medical education research. She currently cares for veterans with cancer at the Palo Alto Veterans Medical Center. Her first biography, Henry Kaplan and the Story of Hodgkin's Disease, was published by Stanford University Press in 2010. Her second biography, Jonas Salk, was published by Oxford University Press in 2015. And she has co-authored Just My Type with Michael Sally, the book for a musical comedy based on the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator Assessment with music and lyrics by Emmy winner Rita Abrams. Charlotte, we'd like to welcome you to St. Louis in Tune. And before we get going in our interview, give us a little bit of introduction about Jonas Salk so we have a framework in which to listen, especially he had a very unusual birth, didn't he? His mother told him he was born with a call, which is an amniotic membrane that covers the head on birth, very rare. But she told him that that meant that he was destined for greatness. And he believed her. They're just an immigrant family, but he believed her. And his brother told me that he used to pray every night that someday he would do some great thing for mankind. He went to school, high school in uh, New York City and college, and always thought that he might become a, go into political work so that he could uh, help the people who were in need. But he became intrigued by the sciences when he was an undergraduate and went on to NYU uh, Medical School, where he became intrigued uh, with uh, microbiology. Just as he was finishing his medical training, Pearl Harbor was bombed, the war started, and there was concern that there was going to be an influenza outbreak. Now, uh, in 1918, the great influenza outbreak killed a huge percentage of the troops, and so they needed vaccine. They needed it desperately. And Jonas Salk joined one of his prior mentors, University of Michigan, and together they co-developed the first influenza vaccine. He was approached uh, by uh, a group from the March of Dimes uh, and asked to join a, a group uh, to make a polio vaccine and uh, or <clears throat> to think about making a polio vaccine. He was just a junior scientist, and that's when he entered the field. So I, I think I'll scroll back a little bit about what it was like before the vaccine. So most people that are born, is that okay? Most people that are born after 1955 really don't have a concept what it's like to live under the specter of poliomyelitis, or that's polio, the short version. Every summer since about 1916, 
polio virus swept across the country, attacking mainly children and, and causing paralysis and death in these epidemics. Newspapers and uh, magazines and later newsreels would show these terrible pictures of innocent children who were struggling in metal braces or entombed in iron lungs. And the worst part was that no one could predict which town or which child would be the cripplers, that's what it was called, next victim. Uh, swimming pools, movie houses were closed, birthday parties canceled. But no matter how vigilant parents were, there didn't seem to be much they could do to protect their children. Polio was highly contagious, and once a child was infected, really the only treatment was supportive care. So fear pervaded the country. When on April 12, 1955, this waiting world learned that Jonas Salk's vaccine could prevent polio, the celebration erupted worldwide, and he became an international hero of the night. Do we know why the polio virus was more active in the summertime than it was throughout the rest of the year? Very interesting. No one ever knows why that happened. That kind of remained a mystery. It was more common in the uh, middle and upper class uh, children, interestingly. And that they did figure out why, because when public health uh, did away with uh, sewage, uh, a lot of the uh, bacteria that were carried diseases to children from, from exposure were taken care of. But children who were in the lower socioeconomic groups were still, when they were children or babies, uh, exposed to bacteria and viruses. And so they still had protection uh, from their mothers, uh, milk and from birth. And so they developed immunity to polio, whereas kids that lived in a pristine, more pristine environment and the public health had taken care of were never exposed to polio when they were young and when they uh, got to be five and six years old and the polio virus came through. It just wiped them out. How did he come to make the polio vaccine, and did he continue the work that his mentor had started? At the time of the, uh, that Salt began his polio work, there were only three vaccines available. One was for smallpox, yellow fever, and rabies. And at that time, most microbiologists, almost all, uh, believed that the only way uh, to make a vaccine was to make it from a live virus that had been weakened so that it wouldn't make me a child sick, uh, but would give them a little low-grade infection to which they would develop an immune response, which then they would carry through life so that when they were really exposed to that uh, virus later in life, they would have an immune response. That was the basis for vaccines. And that approach worked really well with smallpox and yellow fever, and really was what most people thought would be used uh, for polio. Now, Jonas Salk felt very differently. He always, even back when he was in medical school, he kept thinking, well, I don't think you really have to have an infection in order to have a, uh, develop immunity. He thought that you could kill a virus not just weaken it, but actually kill a virus. And so it would have lost its ability to cause infection, but could still stimulate antibodies, and thus would be much, much safer. But he was just a junior scientist and didn't really pay that much attention to him. When he did start working with his mentor, Thomas Francis, 
on influenza. They, they were in a rush because the war had started and influenza wiped out the troops. Where would they be? And Salt started working in, in the laboratory. Francis was traveling the world trying to stamp out influenza. And so they did uh, test this and killed uh, a virus and made a vaccine that uh, turned out to be very effective against influenza. So uh, interestingly, most people don't know that Salk kind of co-developed the first influenza vaccine. I did not know that about Jonas Salk, that he was one of the developers of the influenza vaccine. So most people aren't really aware of that. But the reason that that then still other scientists didn't say, well, okay, let's start using this technique for vaccines, is that that was kind of a, a very quick stopgap. To weaken a vaccine, a virus, to make a vaccine is a prolonged process that can take years. And they felt that this kind of response to a killed virus would be very brief, very short, and nobody picked that up. That, that was just kind of put aside. And so people weren't thinking about that when they began making, working on a polio vaccine. As I said, most vaccines were made from a weakened virus. That was going to be the approach to polio. In 1934, there was an outbreak of polio in Los Angeles, and the public was absolutely frantic when the press announced that two scientists were on the verge of preventing polio. And one of those was Maurice Brody. He was at New York University. And he prepared a polio vaccine using a virus that came from the spinal cord of infected monkeys. He inoculated himself and a handful of children and I said the vaccine was safe and it was effective. At the same time, there was another scientist named John Colmer in Philadelphia who also made a polio vaccine using a live virus and he weakened it using some chemicals. You can weaken it with heat or chemicals. And he inoculated 42 monkeys, his two children, and himself. And then he publicized his success just two days after Brody announced that he had a vaccine. So a race was on. They very quickly both started clinical trials and enrolled about 10,000 children in each. A number of children became paralyzed. And Brody and Colmer were just chastised by the scientific community because they said they rushed into human experimentation before they'd done any proper animal work or safety tests. Brody's career plummeted. And uh, in fact, he died a few years later from a suspected suicide. So following that 1934 tragedy, the investigators became pretty leery uh, about approaching polio, and it pretty much constrained the vaccine work for years and years. And then President Franklin Roosevelt developed polio, and he was probably the most famed polio victim. And he set out to uh, try to raise public funds to uh, help victims and to prevent uh, research to prevent polio. So his law partner, Basil O'Connor, established the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, that's what polio was called, which was better known as the March of Dimes, through which they raised public funds for these efforts. We can come back to that later. That was just an incredible effort in itself. What we'll the story, but it, it's really it's really terrific, and we'll come back to it. What was Salk's relationship with Albert Sabin? I know they approached the vaccine quite differently. Did they have a friendly or hostile kind of relationship? 
So in uh, 1947, uh, Basil O'Connor formed this elite group of senior scientists who were working on viruses and on polio. One of them included Albert Sabin of the Rockefeller Institute. And Albert Sabin was this really bombastic scientist. He was brilliant and had really kind of assumed the leadership of everything he took over. And they were going to help him help uh, plan an attack on polio. Well, Jonas Salk at this time was kind of this bright, young, 33-year-old scientist, and he was working on an influenza vaccine at the University of Pittsburgh. But Basil O'Connor thought that he was, like, he was really a rising star, and they asked him to join the group. Well, as I said, Jonas Salk thought that a killed virus that had lost its ability to actually cause an infection but could stimulate immunity was really the way to go. But he was a junior scientist in this group. None of them believed that. And he didn't want to confront Saban for sure or the other senior scientists. So he kind of kept this to himself. And they were planning out how over a number of years they were going to develop a live virus vaccine. But in 1952, 57,000 Americans contracted polio. The number had been increasing yearly. And Salk didn't want to stand in line behind this cadre of senior scientists waiting to make this live virus vaccine on their timeline. So Salk, a handful of uh, laboratory assistants in this kind of backwater medical school at the time in Pittsburgh, made a killed polio vaccine in three months. Amazing. That is amazing. And then he decided to test it, but he, he wanted to, he kept all this secret because he knew that the Saban would just slam down on him and knew what he was doing. So he uh, tested them at Watson Home for Crippled Children in, in rural Pittsburgh, outside of Pittsburgh, rather, and tested children who had actually had polio before and then went on to test those who had never had polio. And what he found uh, was, in fact, that this killed vaccine could generate anti-polio antibodies. In fact, once a reporter late in Salk's life asked him what was the greatest moment in the whole polio saga, and he said, it was the first time that I measured anti-polio antibodies in a child. I knew then that I could prevent polio. Now, he did all these trials himself gave every single shot. He collected the data. He went back and forth and saw all the children. And he was just so devoted to this. He finally uh, revealed his results to this committee of senior scientists, of which Sabin was a group, in the March of Dimes. And they were dumbfounded. The day he presented his data, they, a, a pin could drop. And then they all just started confronting him. Oh, it couldn't be this. It couldn't be that. But about half the group were very intrigued. And so despite the opposition of many of the senior scientists, including Albert Sabin, the March of Dimes decided to test Salk's vaccine in a nationwide trial. However, there was one caveat. They would not let Salk be the leader to conduct the trial. They thought that scientists might consider the results suspect, and he was so young. And so they turned over the conduct of the trial to someone named Thomas Francis, an epidemiologist who actually had been Jonas Salk's prior mentor, who had made the influenza vaccine with him. But, and began uh, the largest national trial in the, in the history of medicine in the U.S. 
tell us about the large national trial a little bit and the failure of the vaccine from some bad batch that was made at the Cutter Labs. How did that impact the vaccine and SOC ultimately? So I have to go back and lead you through the trial a little bit because the Cutter incident actually happened at the close of the trial. So it was April 26, 1954. As I said, it was the biggest trial in the history of American medicine started with a big national trial with polio vaccine. And it was funded and carried out by the March of Dimes. The public, through their dimes, actually paid for this enormous trial. But not only that, they carried out the trial. So in Selected elementary schools, over a million first, second, and third graders, because they were the most uh, susceptible and they were in school, uh, were assigned by random draw to either receive vaccine or a shot that was a placebo, the saline. And it was totally blinded, so no one knew who got what. And it was carried out by volunteers from the March of Dimes. So there were 20,000 physicians, 40,000 nurses, 14,000 school principals, 50,000 teachers, and 220,000 housewives carried out this big national trial, not some big research institute or some pharmaceutical house. It was carried out by the public under uh, the direction of uh, the March of Dimes. The the, uh, Surgeon General, of course, was watching over it the whole time and at least up to the trial, was continually kicking and and, uh, causing uh, Jonas Salfin a lot of problems. But once the trial started, it was overseen by Thomas Francis, a virologist at the University of Michigan, and by the March of Dimes. So on, uh, and Jonas Salfin, so Thomas Francis, when he said that he would uh, do the trial, uh, said that there was one, no one could prematurely anything about the results uh, until the day that the results were announced. And I see why he uh, did that. And this was such a passionate thing. Every summer, families were just going crazy. Was their child going to get polio? And if anyone thought that the polio vaccine actually did work and might be available, it would scuttle the trial because no one would participate when the child might have a chance of just getting saline. So it was kept secret. And in fact, until the day it was announced, Jonas Salk didn't even know the results. And he had to give a talk immediately following Thomas Francis presenting the results. In reality, actually, uh, Thomas Francis told him at breakfast right before the announcement. So on April 12th, 1955, uh, with television cameras everywhere and, uh, and tons of news media hanging over, the results of the trial were announced. And the vaccine, uh, Thomas Francis said, had been between 80 and 90% active in preventing paralytic polio and had not harmed a single child. Well, the world went wild over that. People everywhere were running into the streets, cheering, hugging each other. Horns were honking. Church bells were ringing. And, and many people compared it to the end of a war. And Jonas Salt became an international hero. So I am working up to the Cutter incident that the uh, vaccine success was announced. The Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare licensed the vaccine, and uh, the March of Dimes was ready. They had uh, 27 million doses of vaccine that were ready to be shipped out that had been produced by six different pharmaceutical firms. 
um, all using Salk's very detailed manufacturing guidelines. Because at the March of Dimes, under Salk's uh, uh, guidelines, had made all the vaccine for the trial. But now they needed to give it to the country. And so they had six pharmaceutical firms that were going to do it. And Salk taught them how to manufacture it. And so the first people that were to get it were the kids, obviously, who got the placebo. And then about 5 million children who were going to enter first grade. That was the most susceptible group. And, and I think pregnant women. Well, that didn't happen. Once <laughs> that very afternoon, thousands of pounds of polio vaccine were sent out across the country. And you can imagine that without the March of Dimes now controlling it, they passed it off to the government who faltered. There was just this enormous uh, uh, de demand for vaccine. There was price gorging as free enterprise gave kind of rise to chaos. And uh, families with means got the shots. Employees in pharmaceutical firms got the shots. And uh, the six manufacturers just couldn't keep up with the supply. Uh, there was this mass kind of exasperation among the public. And to make things worse, the polio season was just starting because the polio season started in May. And that, so finally, President Eisenhower said, well, of all of everything, he took charge and ordered an equitable uh, distribution plan to be created. So now it's on, now it's going. And two weeks into the National Immunization Program, the Surgeon General received reports that seven children had become paralyzed following their uh, polio vaccine. And when they looked at it, they found that most of that, those cases had come from vaccine produced by Potter Laboratories in Berkeley, California. And the Surgeon General had to suspend all vaccinations. But fact, he suspended them initially until they began to find out where they were coming from. Well, and now the polio season has started, and it was just causing... Chaos. The government regulars went out. They looked at Cutter Laboratory. They couldn't find any problems whatsoever. It was a mystery. Uh, but in the meanwhile, no one was going to get vaccines nationwide because they were concerned there must be something the matter with Salk's vaccine. So Salk did his own investigation. He went out to Cutter Laboratory, and he found that in fact Cutter had taken a little shortcut in his procedure, you know, to kind of gear up production. And had left behind live virus, some of the vaccine batches. So they shut down Cutter Labs and investigated all the other five pharmaceuticals. And then restarted the program. But in the meantime, 260 people nationwide attracted polio, either directly from the vaccine or they were the parents of a child who got a vaccine. And 11 died. Jim Assault was devastated. He had never had a single death in his work or in the national trial from the soft vaccine. And very strict manufacturing guidelines were imposed by the government started having stronger oversight. Did Cutter Labs or the government or SOC come out and say this was a mistake and you still have to have confidence in the polio vaccine? Well, there were a lot of finger pointing. Uh, some, well, well, he just didn't have the proper procedures. Uh, some was at the uh, Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare. Well, she never should have licensed it that very day. There was a push to 
to get it going and get it out there. And so it was her fault. And there was a lot of uh, finger pointing at the Surgeon General. Hey, he's supposed to be watching the safety of the country. Where was he? Asleep at the wheel. And so it was it kind of finally faded from view pretty uh, quickly because people were getting their polio vaccines. There were no other uh, cases. Um, but it left a, 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 a terrible, terrible uh, mark on Jim It was a long time before he recovered from that. In the meantime, he was becoming a scientific outcast, and, and that added to it. Why was he an outcast from the scientific community? What I gleaned from your book was that he had this independent spirit, and he always kind of felt in his gut that he was going the right way, but he may not have had the data at the time to back up the path that he was taking. What are your thoughts on that? That's very good. I'm glad you, I'm glad you uh, picked that out. Yeah, so when he first realized something was wrong, <laughs> is after right after the vaccine was announced and the public just rushed to honor him, everybody. He just got all kinds of honors and letters, and prizes and everything. And the scientific community was ominously silent. I mean, he were, because I went through all of his files, he kept every piece of mail he ever received, not even a congratulatory note. He should have been able to bask in the glory of his achievement. And instead, their rebuke kind of cast a shadow over his achievement. So one of the things I did set out to find uh, was what lay beneath these aspersions? What took the scientific hero and put a cloud over him. For one, uh, he was a young researcher. He was just barely 40 when this happened. And he wasn't a part of the kind of scientific brotherhood that really existed at that moment in time with <clears throat> which Sabin and most of the other scientists involved uh, in polio were a, a member of. He had done his uh, trials in secret and not kind of let them know everything that was going on. Way. And he did, as you say, he had this kind of second sense about things. And he was an intuitive kind of scientist. And uh, no, uh, that didn't really, <laughs> that, that, that didn't go over very well at that moment in, in time. And so, uh, probably one of the major reasons for their kind of aspersions was that he challenged one of the felt firmly held principles, and that is that only a vaccine made from a live virus can impart lifelong immunity. I mean, what? You know, this young whippersnapper, you know, kind of coming along and, uh, and so, and they only believed that it was going to last for a short term anyway. So the other thing is that many of them complained that Jonas Salt had grabbed the line line. He was on the front of every single magazine paper around the country, television, and that he neglected to mention uh, the names of the scientists who laid the work to the vaccine along the way. Well, that kind of wasn't fair. <clears throat> Jonas Salt did try to share the credit, but newsmen kind of used Jonas Salt to personify the polio story, and that turned him into a national icon. And we, we all know how uh, the media can make heroes. <laughs> so the public, they didn't want to hear about John Anders or Isabel Morgan. They wanted to know about Jim Lasalk. He was, he was the hero. So even though he got 
the highest awards from heads of states. He got a presidential citation from Eisenhower. He got the Nehru Award, French Legion of Honor. He received almost no recognition from the scientific world. And so that, that was really pretty tragic. One other point I would make, and that is that, that Jonas Salk wasn't blameless. He really did contribute, I think, to his own rejection because of kind of a secrecy uh, surrounding his work. But he reached out to the public in ways that scientists had never done before. And he would give interviews to Good Housekeeping or Parent Magazine. He, he went on television and he showed the viewing public how to make a vaccine using a wearing blender. Scientists, serious scientists, didn't do those kind of things. He, I, I interviewed his uh, longtime secretary, Lorraine Friedman, and uh, she said that he always said that he was felt totally obliged to the the public, that they had supported his research with their dimes and by allowing their children to participate in the trial. But the senior scientists, most scientists, accused him of crossing this, this invisible line of acceptable academic uh, behavior and by soliciting uh, media attention. So that was another thing, I think, that contributed to his rejection. So with the discovery of the first successful polio vaccine, you would think that he would be in line to receive the Nobel Prize, but he never received it. Was he upset about that he didn't receive the Nobel Prize? It, it was interesting because he once told, he befriended uh, Robert Gallo, who was the AIDS superstar uh, later in life. And Robert Gallo asked him that. And uh, Salk said, well, it didn't matter that he didn't win the Nobel Prize because most people thought he did. <laughs> but I think he was just being a little funny about it because it became clear that not only a Nobel Prize, he, he wanted acceptance from his peers. He never got it. He never even got inducted into the National Academy of Sciences, which, yeah, which uh, he, he was blackballed. And some of that was his work was considered not prize worthy because it wasn't a major science breakthrough. It wasn't basic science. It was applicable science, which was recognized at that as being significant. In fact, Albert Satan used to describe Salk's work as kitchen chemistry, was quoted as saying that you could go into the kitchen and do what Jonas Salk did. Other scientists on some of those uh, boards that likened him to a director of product development for a pharmaceutical company. It was so painful. But, you know, as I was looking more and more into why in the world this would happen, I was talking to a, a colleague, interviewing a colleague of his, uh, one who actually had been an anti-solver. And because it seemed like that just wasn't enough of an explanation for uh, the way they handled him. And he said, don't discount envy. Envy is fierce in the world of science. Did Sabin's vaccine replace Salk's vaccine? I know kids really love to drink the strawberry or cherry drink more than getting shot in the arm with Salk's vaccine. Well, so that is an interesting story. So five years after the uh, March of Dimes trial, 
uh, with Salk's polio vaccine, the, his killed vaccine, the incidence of paralytic polio had been reduced by 90% in the U.S. But still, most senior virologists, led by Albert Sabin, maintained that that was going to only be a short-lived protection. In order to have lifelong protection, you had to have a live virus vaccine. And so there was a race to prepare that vaccine. It wasn't just Sabin. There were several of them working on a live virus vaccine. But he was first to finish, get to the finish line. And he did, as you said, it delivered it in liquid form in a sugar cube. He couldn't test it in the U.S. because everybody was getting the salt vaccine. So he tested it extensively in Russia and deemed that it was safe and that it was effective. So in the early 60s, the public health service replaced the salt vaccine with the Sabin oral vaccine in their recommendation and cited cost, because it was cheaper to do, and uh, convenience. Now... Jonas Salk warned that a live, he was very worried that a live virus, even though it had been weakened, could revert perhaps to a more virulent form and actually cause polio. And he began petitioning all the major medical decision makers uh, to reverse uh, this decision by the Public Health Service. And uh, so he called it a very dangerous, politically driven decision. Well, Salk Sabin struck a back. And they, the reporters portrayed this as an ongoing debate as a grand medical feud. And so it made, made really uh, good press, even though Jonas Salt kept saying, this is a feud over a scientific principle, not between two scientists. <laughs> well, it made good press, as you said. And Salk was, in his efforts, was overruled. And in 1968, no pharmaceutical house made the salt vaccine anymore. They stopped manufacturing it. Well, what happened is with time, there were cases of paralyzing polio that came from the Sabin vaccine. It, it was just as uh, Jonas Salk had predicted. But the numbers were few. If you have, nobody thought about the polio vaccine, you just go take that sugar cube. And of course, Sabin denied the charge that it was you know, just, that wasn't true at all. And Salk continued the rest of his life to try to reverse that decision. It wasn't until 1999 that finally the U.S. government did recall the Sabin vaccine and replaced it with now a modified newer version of the Salk vaccine. But at that time, both men were dead. So the, uh, the version of the Salk vaccine is what's used uh, in the United States today. How did he handle this instant celebrity status of making the first successful polio vaccine? He wasn't on The Tonight Show or anything like that. And, you know, I'm sure magazines covered him. Did it change him in any way? Good question. So it's interesting. He, his life didn't change forever. And he suffered really a, a great deal of pain from his pain. He did appear on the Edward R. Murrow show <laughs> the uh, day of the, on that day, <laughs> on April 12th. And on it, Edward R. Murrow <clears throat> warned him. He said, young man, a great tragedy has just befallen. You have lost your anonymity. So I didn't really understand what he meant, but it didn't take long. And he just got thousands and thousands of letters and telegrams and phone calls. And if he went into a restaurant or tried to check into a hotel, he'd get mobbed with people wanting his autograph. They treated him like a movie star. They just wanted to touch him. And and this went on for years and years and years. Yeah. He was uh, constantly ranked in the top 10 
and most important personages in the United in the world. But you, later in life, and then I'll, I will talk about how it affected him. He did tell a writer who asked him, considering that day, what's it been like? And Salk said the following. He said, it's as if I've been public property ever since. It's brought me enormous gratification, opened many opportunities, but at the same time placed many burdens on me. It altered my career, my relationships with colleagues. I'm a public figure now, no longer one of them. And so I have to say, Salk was, he was a very nice person. He was a nice person. And he was an introvert. So it was very uh, hard for him. And, uh, and he really did care about people. But he was suffocating. So one of the things he did was he, he uh, developed what was called then eventually the um, Salk Institute in La Jolla, California, a big research institute. Uh, and he sought refuge there, and he wanted now to work in other scientific fields. But scientists, even at that institute that he built for them, scoffed at some of his work. Personally, he he did change. His, one of his sons said, after April 12th, my father was never the same. Um, and part of it was because he was torn in multiple directions. But be that famous without having a slightly different view of yourself. It was very hard for his family. Um, his first marriage ended in divorce, and he subsequently married uh, Francois Gillot, a French artist whose popular book, Life with Picasso, that it was very popular at that time, detailed her years as Picasso's mistress. So she was a beautiful French artist. And I think Papi Salk realized that if he hadn't been this scientific star, if he hadn't been a celebrity, she probably wouldn't have looked at him twice. <laughs> and that, that was true about a lot of his relationships. He never knew if somebody really cared about him or cared about the, the celebrity. And he changed. He, he started, he had always worn kind of a button-down shirt and his tie and a suit that was slightly wrinkled and had his hair cut short. Well, now he uh, started wearing ascots stylish turtlenecks and his hair back around his neck and he, he had sideburns. He joined sensitivity groups and he wrote philosophy and poetry. And his uh, youngest, one of his uh, sons uh, said his father was Frenchified. <laughs> and he didn't change. And, but one thing never changed and that was his concern for mankind. That, that never changed. Um, but uh, it Notably, that celebrity was incredibly difficult for him and for his family. I'm curious what Salk's children thought about receiving this trial vaccine, which had never been tested. Were they thinking like, what are you doing to me, giving me this vaccine that hasn't been tested yet? Well, first off, I, that, that was my initial reaction as well. <clears throat> but it was not unusual for scientists back then to try out vaccines on themselves and on family members. As I mentioned, the earliest polio vaccine by Brody and he and Ulmer both tested uh, their families with their vaccine and themselves. And uh, it, was, it was very peculiar. So that aspect I don't think was, was hard. And the kids did see, you couldn't help but be scared that you were going to get polio and end up in an iron lung. So I think it probably felt 
pretty fortunate. Oldest son, Peter, who was just starting adolescence, very, very shy. And he, you can see from the pictures of him getting the shot, he kind of did not even want to look at the camera. And, but the second son, who was about six at the time, five or six, uh, Daryl, wanted to be a movie star when he grew up. So they're really, <laughs> but it was definitely, salt, salt didn't plan it this way, but the march, for the March of Dimes, it was definitely a publicity a shot because publicity stunt rather, because there were pictures of Elvis Presley getting his vaccine and other celebrities. So the, the kids didn't mind, I don't think, that much. They came later when he became such a celebrity, but it was hard for them. How did his children handle this instant celebrity status of their father? Did they assume a celebrity persona also from school or people that they came into contact with? I would say probably uh, not. So interestingly, it was very hard for them, uh, not only because his father was, their father was legendary, but they became celebrities by association. So teachers or their classmates or uh, all expected them to excel at everything. And for Peter, that was very hard. Peter had a passion for baseball. That's all he wanted to do was just watch baseball, play baseball. He, and uh, But if he got up to bat, he told me every time he got up to bat, everyone would cheer because he was a salt. Of course he was going to hit a home run and he'd strike out every time. <laughs> it was very, very difficult for him. And Jonas Salt and never expected his children to go into medicine. All three of them did become uh, doctors eventually. But he just wanted them, he encouraged them to have a vision. And that expectation proved to be a burden to all three. So, yeah, the Salk name, because it's not a very common name, the Salk name, uh, they've had slight advantage, but not really, not now as adults. I had a couple of former colleagues who had polio. And as they got older, it seemed like the polio was re-exerting itself in their life and causing them difficulties. Does it recur like that or cause some issues as you get older? No. No, it's not very common. And uh, what it is, it's not that they get polio again. Let's say you had a, when you had polio as a child, you had weakness in your right arm. And gradually, with physical therapy and everything, you gain good use of your arm. And you know, you're 10 years old. And now, at the age of 50, suddenly you're developing some numbness and weakness and almost mimicking it in your arm again. And it's probably a, a delayed, people don't know for sure, it's probably a delayed immune reaction of the nerves uh, being attacked by the immune system, but not related to polio again. So that's, that's a, really, a pretty small number. Actually, the United States has been only a free since 1979. There hasn't been a single reported case uh, in the United States. And the bigger thing is to try to get the world free. Near the beginning of the interview, you talked about the March of Dimes. Discuss that in a little bit more detail for listeners. Well, actually, there is a wonderful book, a Pulitzer Prize-winning book, written by David Oshinsky called the Polio, the American Story. And so he actually has a lot about the whole March of Dimes story. And I actually spent time at the March of Dimes doing research. But so here's the amazing thing to me about the March of Dimes is that the public, here was something attacking their children. The public rose up under the March of Dimes leadership to raise 
all of these funds to do the research, to make the vaccine, and then carried out the clinical trial. And these were just everyday people. So I was a child of that time. And at every single checkout counter, there was a little thing where you put in money for the March of Dimes. At the movie theater, uh, the lights would go on before the show started and I'd pass around cartons for you to give money. When you went trick-or-treating, uh, you carried a special thing for the March of Dimes. And, and, and I remember my allowance was was a quarter a week. That's my allowance. And but it was really hard. I wanted to save it for paper dolls, but every week I would take a dime out and put it in. When I was a kid, I, the whole public was behind this. You never see that. There wasn't any, very little, but no arguing about should you or shouldn't you have a vaccine or whatnot. It was, it was just an amazing story. And that, and it's, that doesn't get a lot of play uh, when it, you talk about Jonas Salt, but who should have really gotten the credit was the American public. By the way, I was in the polio trial. I was wanted to get a vaccine. Yeah, I still have my polio pioneer. It was called the polio pioneer. I'm, yeah, so I was one of the very first to get that vaccine. I didn't know at the time, but uh, I did get the real, the real deal. So I'm thinking about the legacy of Jonas Salk. He helped develop the vaccine for influenza. He was the developer of the polio vaccine. And there is the Salk Institute in California. What other legacies do you believe Jonas Salk leaves for us? Yeah. So, by the way, the uh, Research Institute, the Salk Institute, is probably one of the world's uh, uh, top premier research institutes. So that that really, even though it was failure for him personally, it was a major uh, success. Not only made, by the way, or co-developed the first influenza uh, vaccine, he was really instrumental in campaigning for its use and for the fact that it, it should be a requirement uh, that people get the influenza vaccine. He also later in life got into the AIDS field and made uh, the first uh, treatment vaccine uh, for AIDS, which once somebody was infected with, with AIDS, it would uh, delay or prevent uh, them from going from the vaccine from the infection to actually full-blown AIDS. And he was planning a trial for that when he, when he died at the age of 80. But clearly, the immunization of polio infection is probably one of the world's greatest medical achievements. Give us a couple closing comments as you think about our conversation today and what you want listeners to remember. Well, I think it's Jonas' life is an inspiration. And I, I hope that there other kids out there who will learn about him and be inspired to reach for the stars like he did. And my second comment is, I wish the public were more like they were back in the March of Dimes days. Charlotte, I greatly appreciate you coming on St. Louis in Tune and taking time out of your schedule to talk to us. Folks, the book is Jonas Salk, A Life, and it's by Charlotte Jacobs. She is a physician, an educator, a researcher, an author, and also a musical comedy writer. Charlotte, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Nice to talk to you, Arlen. You take care. We appreciate you listening to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast to keep up on all of the latest episodes. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.